you know, the real challenge measuring opinion through polls is that the people who agree to participate in a poll are different than the people who don't. And so even with the very highest quality probability-based polls, there's still the choice of whether or not you're going to participate once you've been selected to be a respondent. And so, you know, the conventional way to deal with this is through weighting, where we upweight the responses of the people who choose to participate among these underrepresented groups. But, you know, weighting the philosophy of that approach assumes that you know everything about the people who've decided to participate right. and that you can solve this problem through weighting. And I'm just skeptical that that can be done. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. Sid Finkelstein here. I am the host and creator and interviewer of the SIDCast. And my guest today is Dr. Jennifer Jarrett, a professor at Dartmouth College. In fact, she and her husband just moved to New England, to New Hampshire. And I saw a little notice about Jennifer and her work, and I thought, boy, she would be interesting to bring on to the SIDCast. And so I reached out, and well, she said yes, and that's great. And why was I so interested? Well, She's a professor of government, and she studies American politics with a particular focus on public opinion and political communication. And I guess you could see what the interest is in this modern era we're in, in the post-Trump era, in fact. Her research explores how information from the media and from elected leaders influences people's attitudes as well as their knowledge about the political world. She studies misinformation and techniques for correcting this problem. And she's published extensively in all of the political science journals. She's been very active in that whole sphere. My headline for today's session is Dr. Jennifer Jarrett on fake news, fake media, and fake polls. I don't know about you, but I don't know what's true and what's not true anymore. I mean, sometimes it's obvious, right? But other times, you know, people just talk. And it's not just in America. It's all over the world, of course. And it's been going on a long time. People make up stories and it just seems that it's entered the mainstream now. I mean, in just about every country. And here we have someone, Jen Jarrett, who studies this thing and so could provide some perspective in trying to understand what's going on, what this is all about. And, you know, one of my pet peeves is that if you read the media, let's say, okay, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, which I tend to do most days, and you read the editorial pages, you would think that they're really in different planets because they may be talking about exactly the same issue, but their take and their perspective and what they choose, not just to include in the editorial, but here's the sneaky part, what they choose not to include in the editorial is really remarkable. And the only way to know what's in and what's out and what's true and what's not true is to read the source material yourself, and then you start to get a bit of a feel for it. But who has time? Who has time to read what a law says or what a bill says? Who has time to do that? And so we look towards the media to try to give us some, well, guess what? To give us the news, the news, the facts. But nowadays there's not a lot of facts, right? There's opinions and there's spinning and there's a lot that's fake. And so the three headlines for you today on this episode with Dr. Jennifer Jarrett are the following. Number one, what's wrong with opinion polls in politics? 
we could probably have taken a couple hours just on that topic, right? But also, you know, what can we do to make them better? What can happen to make them better? And that actually is something that Jen spends a lot of time in her research on to try to improve the methodology of opinion polls. And I think we need people to get into the methodological and scientific underpinnings of opinion polls to try to get a little bit closer to try to make them better. But they're highly suspicious and incomplete. When you have sites like 538, which is really a great one, you know, 538.com, their job is to interpret for us what all these polls say. And then, you know, some of the major media also do some of this interpretation. Soon we're going to need another organization to come up and interpret what the interpreters say about the polls. So we got a big mess, and I'm hoping Jennifer will be able to shed some light on that and help us understand it better. Number two, why is there so much political polarization in this country, and how could it be fixed? Well, I say in this country, meaning America, it's that way almost everywhere in the world. And where's it coming from? And you know, a lot of people have talked about this, but here's someone, Jennifer Jarrett, who studies this and has studied this. And I think she'll be able to give us some interesting perspective on that. And then number three, maybe most fundamentally, how do you convince people about anything? Now, that's a topic that's relevant for people in marketing, in public relations, in politics, of course, in teaching, in almost every field. But how do you convince people? I mean, how do you convey a set of facts in a particular way so that people say, okay, I believe that, I understand that. I think that makes sense. How do you do that? And by extension, how do you combat fake news? What could we do about it? How could we reduce this cancer of fake news? The fake news is everywhere and they're getting better and better. And this is not just postings on Facebook and Twitter, which were bad enough during the elections and that's not gonna be going away that fast. But it's about everyday fake news that you see in the media. And what can we do? What should be done? What's appropriate? How does this relate to privacy? I mean, lots and lots of very important issues. We'll talk about COVID and algorithms and other things as well, but those are the kind of three big headlines. What's wrong with opinion polls in politics and how can they get better? Number two, political polarization. Can we fix it? And then number three, how do you convince people about anything? How do you combat fake news? So Jennifer Jarrett is a perfect guest to have on the SIDCast to talk about all of this. Very topical, very relevant, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode as much as I did talking to Jennifer. Here we go. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I am here today with Professor Jennifer Jarrett. Hi, Jen. Hi there. It's good to have you uh, with us. You're a professor of government at Dartmouth College, and you've been at the college actually just a short time, about a year and change now. What's your first impressions of the little hamlet of Hanover, New Hampshire? Oh, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. I had been here before I took the position, and so it wasn't completely unfamiliar to me. So it's great to be back, and it's a wonderful place to work and to live. Yeah, it sure is. So I'm always interested how people end up you know, following their pastor. Did you know growing up as a little girl you were going to be a professor? I don't think so. I mean, I guess I have some funny memories forcing my brothers to play school and whatnot, but I don't think that I was consciously thinking that I would take the path that I have now it was really just some great experiences with professors in college that made me become interested in political science and want to study it further. Yeah, that's what happens, right? Were you a major in political science or that's just something you picked up? You know, I was originally an economics major, and so I picked up political science very late in my college career. So in that sense, it was very unexpected, but I took some classes that really just changed my path. And so in some ways, you know, it was very unpredictable, but mm -hmm. I think it was the right path. Do you remember any particular one of those courses that really stuck with you? 
Yeah, I took a presidency class with Professor Erwin Hargrove. So he was a very well-known expert on Jimmy Carter. And it's just so dynamic in the classroom. And it was a class that felt like none of the other ones that I'd taken before. And I just thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then I think at that point, I was probably in my senior year. Then I took Introduction to American Government. So I really sort of did things in reverse. And I liked that class as well. And just, you know, really sort of piled up the political science classes at the end. So did you continue in school, like graduate school right away? Or you did something else? No, I went on to, I did a couple of internships and fellowships in the political world. So I was working in the city of Chicago's budget office. And then I had a fellowship in state government in Springfield, Illinois. So I was working in the governor's office. So I was out of school for about two years and then decided to go back to graduate school. What was it like in the governor's office? What was that culture like? Uh, you were one of many aides and advisors and analysts, I take it, in the office. Oh, it was really exciting. I mean, it's a great first job for somebody out of college. There were a lot of other young people in the program. And mm -hmm. so it was interesting, really exciting to be, you know, you felt like you were part of the action. But we were also doing substantive work. So I felt like I was doing something that was important and meaningful. And so mm -hmm. that was very satisfying. Yeah. Who was the governor at that time? Jim Edgar a moderate Republican and very interesting person. And this is the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm, yes. So a moderate Republican. So Illinois has been quite interesting because there have been shifts between Democratic and Republican. Unusual for this country, right? Yeah, that's right. And then also a lot of governors that have later gotten into trouble. Oh, yes. What's his name? Who ended Blagojevich. up in jail, I think. Who was it again? Uh, George Ryan and then Rod Blagojevich. That's Rod. Yeah, that's so, what I was thinking. Um, yeah, Jim Edgar was very upstanding. He was very proud of being a boring person. So it was a nonpartisan fellowship. It was really about learning about the various parts of state government. So we rotated around. I spent some time in the budget office and then worked directly for the governor's advice on economic policy. Yeah, it was very interesting. One of the things I've written about and talk about with my students are these first jobs or early experiences working, and especially your bosses. And you don't have to name any names, but there's a ton of learning when you go into the real world and discover how things are really done. Anything you want to share or could share about how you felt, how you observed that? I mean, this is just an audio, but we're looking at each other and I see your eyes light up with that question. So I'm really interested. You know, one of my bosses was a pretty intimidating person. I mean, a very hard worker. So I had enormous respect for him, but I felt a lot of pressure and wanted to work very hard to meet his expectations. He would review your work very closely. And so you would be sitting there watching him review a memo that you had just written and you were hoping that you didn't make any mistakes or that you didn't leave any details out. And I guess there was just a lot of anticipation getting through those moments. Yeah. I've often said that just because you have a tough boss doesn't mean you have a bad boss. And some of those, I mean, there's a lot of variation, but some of them really do help advance your career by pushing you to another level. And it sounds like he may have been a bit more of that. Maybe not the easiest, but you learned a lot. Oh, absolutely. You just, you elevate the kind of worker you are. And that's a huge challenge. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. So did you go to graduate school after that? Yes, I did. That's a big thing. To, and graduate school was a master's first or was a PhD program? It was a PhD program. So you could go there and just obtain a master's. But I think I was thinking that I was going to do the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a big step to take because the time commitment. How many years did it take to get the PhD? Five years. Five years. So that's not a little bit. It's not medicine, but it's not 
you know, short of that, well, science PhDs are even longer because of postdocs and many other steps as well. But you were sure you wanted to do this? Yeah, I was pretty sure. I think I had a great working experience. And then I think I was ready for something new. And that seemed, given how much I enjoyed taking the political science classes at Vanderbilt, this seemed like the next logical thing to do. One of the things that happens in PhD programs is the conversion from taking classes to actually doing research happens pretty early. And it's completely different. You knew you were getting into that because of PhD program, but how did you kind of navigate that? Did you have really good advisors that helped or get classmates, which in my case were really great, a strong team. We kind of helped each other. Yeah, I guess I had a little bit of both, but I had some really great advisors. I think they just made me the kind of scholar I am today. I knew I wanted to be in graduate school, but I didn't know a lot about the research process. And so my primary advisor allowed me to work alongside of him literally and figuratively. So my office was next to his and he was just a complete workaholic. And so it was very motivating, inspiring. And it was fun to watch him puzzle through research projects and thinking about the question and the importance of framing and writing and just Mm -hmm. the whole process. I felt like I got to be a part of that. You don't know how to do that. That's not a skill you naturally have. You only learn it by doing it. And he allowed me to be a part of that learning process. That's really a classic apprenticeship when you get right down to it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You're reminding me a little bit about my advisor when I was in a PhD program. Don Hambrick is his name. We're still good friends. And he would start his days, 4 a.m. would be late, I think. And he was always nice. He'd wait till 7 or 7.30 before calling me. He says, are you up yet? And Yeah. So you kind of get the feel. Workaholic, but a superstar talent and an incredible mentor. Because it's not just about learning how to do research, which, of course, without that, there's nothing. But it's also how to navigate your career and think about next steps. And what you also said about the process, the questions that you ask, they're not just so important. They're everything, in my view. If you don't ask the right question, it doesn't much matter what answer you're going to come up with. You know, you look at the academic world just across the board generally now, and there's so much more data-driven research is going on. And I'm not always convinced that people are asking the best or most interesting questions anymore. I don't know if that's something in your field. Uh, that you've seen or you've had to fight against? Because there's a site to academia people outside of this area might not know, but you can do a lot of really narrow studies that might get you into a good journal. But at the end of the day, what have you really discovered? What insights have you provided to help people understand whatever it is you're studying, maybe to help people practice this? And the more I've gotten into it, the more I've been so focused on looking for the stuff that makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was lucky in that he taught me how to think of interesting questions. And so that was how I learned how to do research. And so I'm eternally grateful. And then I'm also at the point in my career now where I don't have the kinds of pressures that might incline someone to just go run out and collect data and quickly try to put together a project that can get published. That's not very interesting to me. And so I like to think of writing as a sense-making process. You're writing or you're doing research to make sense of something. And so I like being driven by puzzles or contradictions in the literature. That's what makes it fun. Yeah, I love that sense-making notion because I think it goes beyond writing and research. It's kind of like life. (laughs) Whatever you're doing, you're trying to make sense of what's around you because you're seeing new things. And hopefully you're seeing a lot of new things and you have to make it something that you can understand or if it's not something you can understand, you create a new environment or you fight against it. But, you know, so many people have studied so many things. I bet somebody, maybe this is philosophy, has written about this. But this sense making as part of everyday life, not even just your job, but just everyday life, 
seems like a really good metaphor for living. Well, we don't always know where we're going, but you just have <laughs> faith that you're going somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So you call yourself a political psychologist, or you're at least in the field of political psychology. What is that? I mean, I know what political science is. I know what psychology is, but what is this combination? Well, I mean, at the most basic level, it's the application of what we know about human psychology to the study of politics. So a lot of my work has to do with information processing. So that means I'm using theories and concepts from psychology to better understand how people acquire, store, and then later use information. So really just using what we know from psychology to deepen our understanding of the political world. How about an example of something from your research that will make that clear? You know, I think a real core question right now is when will partisans absorb contrary information? Okay, so Democrats and Republicans, you know, is there this tendency for them to seek out information that confirms their existing beliefs? Or under what conditions might we think that they will be influenced by new information? And so political psychology is uniquely equipped to help us understand that because it gives us the tools to understand when information from the political world will influence people. When will they learn new information? So when will their political knowledge increase? You know, more pertinently, when do they correct misperceptions? If they cling to something that's wrong, how can we correct that? Or when do they change their attitudes? What kinds of arguments from elites will get them to change their views? So those are some of the more concrete kinds of topics that somebody who studies political psychology might study. Those are the questions of the day that you just described in so many veins. And you said something I'm going to interpret as very encouraging, which is that there are ways and there are examples of people changing their minds, not just being on one camp or the other. It doesn't seem that way from the outside as you just read the papers and watch what's going on. Have you been able to document this? And how do you do it? How can we encourage people to not be so uniformly focused on their world on either side of the aisle? Well, I mean, one thing we know is that matters both some of my own work and certainly the work of a lot of other people is that the kinds of motives or goals that people have as they're taking in information matters a ton. So among political psychologists, there's this dichotomy. We, we might contrast two broad sets of goals. And one might be a person who's motivated by accuracy goals. And so they're wanting to make the right decision, or they might be concerned about the accuracy of the process by which they collect new information. At the other end of the spectrum, a person can be motivated more by the outcome of the decision-making process. And so we talk about those being directional goals. And so in those cases, somebody would want to make a decision or their goal or their motive is to make a decision that's consistent with a political commitment, such as their partisanship, or maybe even a pre-existing attitude. And so information processing looks different depending upon those motives. And there's a lot that's going on in the present day that primes people to think about their partisan identity. And so their motive might be to make a decision or to seek out information that reaffirms mm -hmm. those existing political commitments. But there still is the possibility that they can be motivated by other goals. You might be able to nudge people to become more concerned with the accuracy. And there are some psychologists who are doing that kind of work. Do you know how you could do those nudges? I mean, I'm kind of pessimistic on this, so I'd love to get some ideas. One concrete way would be to ask people to engage in a task where you are explicitly telling them to judge the accuracy of headlines, for example. That's the treatment in one of the studies that I'm thinking about. So people engage in a task that gets them to think about accuracy as a goal. 
And just that little nudge priming the notion, hey, I should be concerned with accuracy in this particular setting makes them less likely in this particular case to share misleading information with a peer. So little process tasks that prime, even temporarily, a different kind of goal. The question is, how long does that last? But Mm -hmm. it's important just to show that this can be done in any setting. And then you think about interventions that can make those goals more long lasting. Yeah. So, and I take it in the lab, this can be done. I'm thinking about how do you scale this even a little bit where people are just living their lives there. I don't know whether either you have ideas or you've seen people do this research or you yourself, how you can scale the benefits of this, whether it's nudges or any other shifting the motivation as you described earlier. Well, one part of this is, you know, you want to nudge people in the direction of accuracy. But another part of this also is trying to disalign some of the contemporary conversation with partisan motives. So get people to, you know, in addition to to have people thinking more about accuracy is trying to reduce the presence of these directional motives. I think that's another part of it people not always being motivated by defending other their partisan position or not thinking of every decision-making task or every you know news-seeking situation as an, an exercise in affirming their partisan identity. Yeah. Well, I like to think about how that could be scaled, even, you know, in micro areas, like even in a town or a city or a state, not necessarily a whole country all at once, because you have to be able to communicate to a lot of people. Right. Well, here's an example. Why did mask wearing become partisan? It didn't need to become partisan, right? There's nothing inherent in a public health message that should have been partisan, but it did become partisan. Mm -hmm. So trying to separate those two would be one way to think about this. Yes, but the big question is how. (laughs) Once it started, it just gets deeper and deeper as we're talking about. Maybe, I mean, tell me if you think this is right or possible. Maybe it's important for political leaders or organizational leaders to think about what the partisan move or the extremist move might be. I mean, it's sometimes hard to know all the possibilities. I don't know that in retrospect, it was shocking to know that mask wearing would become a political statement. I mean, it isn't, it isn't. It's not that it was a zero probability. So I'm thinking, well, ahead of time, can we think about what might happen? where the interpretation is something that's going to be not a good thing, like masks are bad for you or a political statement. And then try to, by way of how you introduce the idea, put in place, I don't know, some medicine into the process so that it's less likely to lead to the outcome that we got. So have we seen, have you seen things like that? Are people thinking about it that way? Because, you know, you're focusing on fixing it afterwards and it's just hard. I mean, we just, we haven't gone anywhere in the mask wearing issue as far as I could tell. It's probably gotten even worse. Right. Well, I mean, this is a really deep problem because it involves changing the incentives of partisan political elites, right? They probably perceive that they have more to gain in terms of their political survival by keeping the conversation at a partisan level and encouraging people to think of themselves as partisans rather than appealing to some superordinate identity, for example. Yeah, the motivations and incentives people have drive so much behavior. As you're saying, I was talking to somebody the other day in a totally different venue. He's a lobbyist, a very senior lobbyist in a major industry. And he said, sometimes, you know, they know the congressmen, the senators, the aides, the White House, they know it's the right thing to do. They'll even tell you that, but then they say, we can't do it. And we can't do it for exactly the reasons we're talking about. Things that people say, like appealing to the base and all this other type of stuff. 
And yeah, we kind of all know that happens, but that's discouraging. <laughs> There's no way to run a country. That's what I'm going to tell you. But that's what we've got. And have you looked at other countries as well? Is America unique in our kind of extreme partisan or even historically? I have to believe there are plenty of other stories or examples historically where what we're doing here is probably mild compared to what happened elsewhere. You know, I tend to focus on the United States, but one of my colleagues in the government department, he's documented um, you know, this phenomenon of affective polarization. His name is Sean Westwood. And so he's done a lot of research in the United States, you know, this phenomenon by which self-described partisans express intense dislike and distrust of people in the other party. And he's found evidence for that in other countries. And so that this divide along partisan lines is, you know, in the U.S. context, he shows that it's as salient, maybe even more salient than racial divisions. And so that's a very provocative finding, but he shows it in other countries as well. So in other countries where there's a really strong linguistic or religious difference, Mm -hmm. that you still see this kind of polarization based along a political difference. And so it's not completely unique to the United States. I'd have to believe it's not. I mean, it leads me to speculate that this is an element of quote unquote human nature. And where's that come from? The upbringing of people around the world is going to vary a lot. So is there some DNA? I don't know, again, if people have looked at that or not, but I just recently read Walter Isaacson's new book called The Code Breaker, which is really fantastic. Do you know that one? It's about Jennifer Doudna, the professor at Berkeley. It's one of the co-inventors of CRISPR that is used for gene editing. It's incredible. And every problem I hear about, I think, was there some DNA, some genetic basis to it? But, you know, people have been fighting and killing each other for a very long time. And this is the history of people on Earth. So, I mean, if there is some type of genetic basis to this, I don't know how we're going to make much progress. Yeah, well, these in-group, out-group dynamics are really fundamental. And so that's a pervasive pattern. It doesn't take much to create feelings of in-group versus out-group. And so, you know, there's research showing that you gather people and you create a commonality among them, even on something as mundane as eye color or the kind of art you all think you enjoy. And you immediately, you know, view your compatriots as an in-group and then other people are an out-group. So that's a really fundamental pattern that's been observed in dozens of studies, but it's also the case that you can form superordinate identities that bridge these in-group, out-group differences. Mm. And that's been shown in psychological experiments. You even see some evidence for it in the political context where you can get people to think of themselves as parents, for example, Mm -hmm. rather than partisans that Republicans think differently about climate change when they're thinking about that issue through the lens of being a parent and thinking about this as a generational issue and the fact that they have kids and they may care about what the planet looks like in years hence, that becomes this superordinate identity that can transcend partisan differences. And so I think that makes me hopeful and it just is going to demand some creativity for thinking about what those superordinate identities are and how to scale them up, as you say. That's really a great point. And so intuitive now that you mention it, it makes me wonder whether some of these ideas are permeating into the top political arenas where people are making these arguments and often tend to fall into you know, traditional us versus them in group, out group, as you just described. Is there that type of influence, I'd say political psychology in general, to major decision makers that they're paying attention to this? 
I haven't seen enough evidence, let's just say, but it sure sounds like a really, just that one little idea, sure sounds like a really good idea that they should at least think about how to do. This is one of the problems. You start studying economics. Economists are pretty much the only social science that seems to get into the corridors of the White House and Congress. And economists are much more wrong than they're right. That's the irony of the whole thing. But they talk a good game, I say. But the people that are involved in a lot more nitty-gritty, more, not coarser, but more fine-grained research tend not to have as much influence. Anyways, that's just a mini diatribe. But what do you think with respect to your field? That's interesting. You know, I do think that some of the basic discoveries and findings of political psychologists could be very relevant for applied politics. There has been, it seems like a separation between people who study politics and people who practice it. And I'm not quite sure I understand why that's the case. I do think there are people who get PhDs or maybe masters in political science, and then they go on and work in the political world. So they've been trained as political scientists. But I don't think political scientists have had the kind of experience that economists have had. I guess the one exception is President Obama seemed to be more willing to invite social scientists into his circle. That's the most salient recent example I could think of. But I don't think a lot of that was happening in the Trump presidency. Yeah, that's high probability speculation. So speaking about that, what did you think on January 6th, 2021? It was very surprising. Scary, a little bit sad. I guess for months, you know, many of us who were watching things unfold between the election and Inauguration Day thought it was a possibility, but didn't really think anything like that was going to happen. So there's a lot of, you know, bluster and threats veiled and not veiled. And so it was surprising and sort of a dark moment for the United States, I think. Yeah. And in some ways, a manifestation of the worst of the problem you're trying to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you about a lot of people have talked about Fox versus MSNBC, the two opposite major cable networks. What's your take? I mean, I've looked at on occasion both, and they really are completely different, as we know. How big a factor is it? I mean, a lot of people say, you know, Fox News says what Fox News says, and people believe things, and even, you know, not that long ago, what was that story about Kamala Harris wrote a book or something that was being given to kids at the migrant? I can't even remember. It was such a crazy idea. Completely fabricated. And there are many things like that that happened. So this has gotten a lot of attention. I'm wondering whether it's gotten scholarly attention, if there are any insights that come out of that. Yeah, well, I mean, the content of these two channels is obviously vastly different. It's challenging to identify the effect of that on people because people are choosing to watch these programs. You know, there's some element by which there are different people watch these programs. And so they're different to begin with. They may have different persuasions. They may have different levels of knowledge, different levels of interest. They may differ on other characteristics that we can't even mention. And so there are different viewers and they are selecting into these channels most likely. And so that from a social science standpoint, that's the biggest challenge is how to identify or isolate the unique effect from the same person watching Fox versus that same person watching MSNBC. I completely get that point. And it's a classic problem in research in other venues as well, other fields as well. I mean, it boils down to certain types of people are selecting certain network, Fox or MSNBC. Their minds are already made up. It's not that Fox or MSNBC are necessarily convincing them otherwise. Now, there's always a distribution and some people that's true. 
but it'd be very hard to say it's Fox that's convincing people. I mean, tell me if you think that's right. It's Fox that's convincing the majority of people that have very right-wing views and, and MSNBC that's convincing people to develop very or more left-wing or progressive views. Do you think that's right? Because sometimes you see this in the public discourse, and in fact, they don't say that. They say it's exactly what's happening. People watch Fox get all these crazy ideas. And of course, some Republicans say people who watch MSNBC get all these crazy ideas. Well, people who select into these different channels are certainly getting their views reinforced. That's for sure. There are some creative ways to isolate the unique effects of the content in these broadcasts. And so the way that Fox News rolled out that is a process that transpired over time. And so there's some creative sort of natural or quasi-experimental work that's being done. Some of it's done by one of my former colleagues at Stony Brook, Brian Vanderweelen, and some of his mm -hmm. collaborators, where they're mm -hmm. sort of using the uneven rollout of Fox News across the country to identify the effects of that coverage. And so it's not the same as a randomized controlled experiment but you are gaining some leverage. You know, that moves you towards being able to say that there was a causal effect on knowledge or attitudes. Right. That's a clever study design, actually. And so is that research finding that there is a causal relationship that watching Fox News leads to more extreme right-wing views? I think some of that research was, you know, I'm not exactly sure what some of the outcomes were. I know they were looking at the behavior on political elites that elected officials who are in those areas are acutely aware that their behavior is being monitored by local Fox broadcasts. And so they are very careful to hew the party line. So I know that's some of what that particular research was showing. But this strategy of studying the uneven, almost random rollout of Fox has been employed by a lot of researchers. And so it's possible that some of those studies looked at knowledge. So I know even probably some economists have been looking at this as well. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Some of this reminds me also of algorithms. It's a topic I wrote just a short piece once a few years ago. And the upshot is, you know, Amazon is our perfect example, but every tech company uses algorithms. What are those algorithms say on Amazon? Well, you like a book? I like the code breaker. So what appears as a recommendation from Amazon? Similar types of books. And now consider, well, I like a certain type of vacation. I like a certain type of car. Whatever you like, they know what you like. That's their job, right? And again, this is way beyond Amazon. I mean, that's how Google sells ads in many ways and Facebook. And so when the algorithms know what we like, it is logical for those algorithms to suggest more similar things, which takes you deeper and deeper down the same pathway that you've been on and leads to less diversity and variety of perspectives if you let that happen. And that's their job. And many people, I mean, I was quite happy about these algorithms when Amazon said, you might like this book. I said, you know what? I think I might. But when you start to reflect on it, algorithms are a method, a very common method everywhere really now that leads people to narrower range of views, less exposure to diverse products, ways of thinking, books, records, who knows what. What do you think about that idea? It's just an idea. I didn't do any research on that. And has anyone looked at that as an interesting kind of factor in this discussion we're having? Yeah, I guess it could lead you to narrowing. I'm trying to think through what the political outcome would be in this case. So the example you gave was books. So how do we think through this in terms of a more political science context? Yeah, I couldn't answer that because I don't know. But I bet that there's a research question in here because algorithms are everywhere. 
when you think about where people get information, which is what you're interested in, well, it turns out that it's happening in this mechanized system with every big tech company doing this and doing it at a really high level and making a lot of money because they're doing it. So in other words, there's a lot of companies that are paying them for those ads or Amazon is getting more sales. So it's working and they keep tinkering and adjusting those algorithms. And so if that leads to a narrowing of views, why would it not lead to narrowing views in a political arena? You just have to think about the right aspects of the algorithm or right algorithms to look at to see if that's true. Right. Yeah. I guess the analog would be people being led to different news stories, right? If you, mm-hmm. if you're interested in this, yeah. topic, you might want to read this story. And then, you know, in that sense, that's how misperceptions can be validated or people led down a certain path where they start to piece together information in a way that's, you know, maybe not accurate. Right. That's a really good example because Google News, which just shows up on my iPhone, and I look at it because it's a good summary. Well, they put the stuff I'm interested in. They have paid attention. Now, some of it is quite innocent that I happen to like food and cooking, so I get more of those articles. I'm from Canada, so I get a few more Canadian articles. But, you know, it could be anything. This is a factor that I think is a very significant one. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about COVID. And in particular, what do you think... First of all, what you've seen, if you have looked at COVID as a research topic or colleagues of yours have, and in particular, I'm interested in whether, you mentioned the mask issue, of course, but I'm interested in whether any of the effects or how might some of the effects of COVID impact public policy, politics, opinions, how opinions are gathered. It's really a question about whether you anticipate any really long-term changes that take hold. And I'll just give it a little bit more context. In some of the companies I work with or that I teach, they talk about BAU, business as usual. It's like a common acronym. And many people think BAU is over because of COVID. And of course, working from home is a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. And then other people say, we're going to go back to what we did before as fast as possible. And so obviously there's a lot of variation, but it was this watershed moment. It's not right to say moment because it's 15 months and counting, but in the scheme of things, it is. And 9-11, as horrible as that was, was really a single event over the course of a day or two. And then, you know, the implications and ramifications went on a lot longer and that changed America dramatically. So anyways, long preamble to the question on whether you think and how COVID might be affecting politics, public policy, the work that you do, and how it might affect it into the long term. Well, I think it's certainly going to affect people's public health behaviors going forward. It was really miraculous to see that there was no flu this year because Mm -hmm. we all changed our behaviors. That's not necessarily political, but it certainly has to do Mm -hmm. with public health. I think many people, probably many educators, will be thinking about learning lessons from that. It signals that we can have a lot of agency over whether or not we get sick from a virus like the flu. I think it shined the light on a lot of inequities. So people were differentially affected by COVID. And these are inequities that they aren't new to us, but it was just certain kinds of people were more affected by this. That's right. And Jen, there's very specific data on this. I, just not that long ago, I saw this thing on antibodies, COVID antibodies in New York City. And you looked at Hispanic population, black population, white, and it was unbelievably different. In other words, COVID had hit the underrepresented communities, or at least the people of color communities, way more than white people. Pretty clear data that you can't argue with that. That's produced by antibodies. That's not manufactured data. That's real data. Yes, I think that's going to spur further thought and research. I think, you know, Biden's success with vaccinating people is a real story in 
government at work, government doing something. And so there was a real contrast in how the country was dealing with this before and after January 6th. And so for people who are interested in public administration and how government functions, I think that's an interesting case study. And then regretfully, there's a lot of misinformation. And so I guess that's closer to my own area. And so, you know, unfortunately, this has become another area where people have inaccurate information and feel confident about it. And there's a real challenge to fix that problem. Yeah. And in particular, you might be referring to vaccines and people refusing to take vaccines because they think it could hurt them or that it's some diabolical plot. I've seen stories of that in many, many other countries. I think America, as in many areas, we're better than everyone else. We do it more. We do the bad stuff more and we do some of the good stuff more also. And so I hear Biden giving speeches and others talking about how important it is. And these are arguments that are rational, logical, science-based arguments. And certainly been my experience, and I suspect your research as well, is that that is often not enough because it does not appeal to the emotions of people. That's why storytelling is so powerful. In fact, I remember I saw something in Google News and somebody mentioned, so you never know what's true and what's not, but there's a story in Israel of how the very orthodox community was really resisting vaccines. And there was this woman, mother of five, that didn't want to take it. And she gave birth. And I think, I'm not sure if I'm going to get it exactly there, but I think she died not long afterwards from COVID. And that that really affected the community because here's a real story, as credible as could be, emotional, as emotional as it gets. And that that had a bigger impact than government talking and talking, you know, how you need the vaccine. Yeah, personal experience is huge. I think it's unfortunate that in this case, it has to be a negative, you know, tragic experience. But I think that is an input into people's attitudes, their actual day to day experience with the political world. And so that, I mean, you just described a situation where that has an effect. It's too bad that it involves somebody dying. So that's certainly one way. I think, again, this idea of appealing to, I think, you know, Biden's trying to appeal to being an American. It's the patriotic thing to do. This is not Mm -hmm. partisan. Do you like that approach? You think that has a chance? I'm not sure. It may resonate with some people. I'm just trying to think of the subset of individuals who are this hardcore group that's opposed to getting vaccinated. Some of them are conservative men. And so the idea is that this has become a partisan thing for them. I'm very curious to know how they would think about vaccination if they were aware that Trump himself has been vaccinated. He's been vaccinated since December. Mm -hmm. So that's, here's a very prominent cue giver in their tribe who's yes. done the thing that they're refusing to do for reasons that I'm not quite clear about. And so that would be an interesting way to push against some of those partisan impulses. Yeah. I mean, it's a fact, but he has said that he was vaccinated, but compared to other things that he said, this didn't seem to have a lot of energy behind it, which is another kind of crazy, mysterious thing. He's not promoting it, but that doesn't mean somebody else couldn't promote that message. Mm-hmm. Although he would be the best spokesperson for this audience. Although having said that, in the evangelical community, there's a lot of resistance. And again, I just have some thoughts from you know, things I've read in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post. So I don't have a sense of the overall data. But there are many evangelical leaders that have been vaccinated and are telling people in their communities to be vaccinated, but yet there's still resistance. So here's a what one would think is a highly credible spokesperson where they're not being that effective. And that's a bit of a puzzle. I would not have, it's the opposite to the story. Well, it's not the opposite of the story, but the story in Israel, once this happened, certainly the senior rabbis were all talking about this and that made a big impact. But what do you make of that where major influential people in a community say one thing and there's still resistance, a lot of resistance? 
Oh, so the leaders are encouraging people to... There are many examples of that. Again, I couldn't tell you it's 20%, 80%. I don't know how they're encouraging, but I have seen and read examples of that. But yet that's still one of the communities that has been much slower to vaccinate. Yeah, that's really tough because in theory, that should be the most compelling message giver for that community. That's what I'm thinking, but yet it's not working as they anticipated or we would anticipate it. Right. Um, So, you know, we think of source credibility as being very important for understanding persuasion. And so you would think that those people would be, the religious leaders would be uniquely credible for that audience. I'm not quite sure. It would be really, you know, that's the sort of thing you'd need to do some kind of a qualitative study where you're really trying to unearth why the lay people are not believing that message. Yeah, it could actually be a really important investigation because in a way it runs counter to the problem we were talking about before about partisanship. Because here is, it's not exactly political partisanship, but it's not unrelated. And it's not working. And what we were talking about before with Fox and and algorithms and everything else, it's working incredibly well. So, you know, when you see that, you say, well, maybe there's something to be learned about how to break down some of those partisan pressures that occur. You've done also a lot of work on opinion polls. Why were they so bad in 2016 with Clinton and Trump? Well, there's been a lot of discussion about this, obviously. I think, you know, the conventional wisdom in 2016 is that, you know, some of the projections we were getting from state polls were inaccurate, you know, not weighting in the appropriate way. You know, the real challenge measuring opinion through polls is that the people who agree to participate in a poll are different than the people who don't. And so even with the very highest quality probability-based polls, there's still the choice of whether or not you're going to participate once you've been selected to be a respondent. And so, you know, the conventional way to deal with this is through weighting, where we upweight the responses of the people who choose to participate among these underrepresented groups. And so I think some of the thought was, was that that was not being done you know, there were some mistakes or errors in the way that was done for particular groups, particularly groups related to education in 2016. But, you know, weighting the philosophy of that approach assumes that you know everything about the people who've decided to participate right. and that you can solve this problem through weighting. And I'm just skeptical that that can be done because I think there are some differences maybe that we haven't measured, that we can't measure. Or maybe there's differences that we don't even know about between the people who are choosing to participate and those who aren't. And so you're always going to be wondering whether you've captured all the differences and have weighted appropriately. So I think that's a little bit of a, it's not futile, but I don't think that that's going to completely solve the problem and that it's probably more useful to try to think about, try to take that as an object of study and try to understand why people participate. Hmm. Yeah, because some of that rejiggering of the data based on assumptions you're making, I don't believe there's any grounded theory that says that this is the equation you should use. It's just these are estimates, right? There's the variables that you're using, and then there's also probably you know numerous different kinds of techniques that you can use to do that. And so it's, you know, ideally you would sample from a well-defined universe of potential respondents. And if you had information about those people, then you could study who agrees to participate and who doesn't. And that becomes the object of your investigation is understanding that process by which somebody wants to become a survey respondent. And so those data are not easy to come by, but I think 
it's an important thing to think about because we know things even like personality traits affect whether somebody wants to participate in, in mm -hmm. surveys. So, you know, with all these issues that you're bringing up and the 2016 data point, why are opinion polls still so important in the political arena? seems like it's still the dominant thing. Well, I think historically we've sort of held polls up as being a very egalitarian method, right? Everybody sort of has a voice if you're in a poll. So it's one of the more, you know, egalitarian ways a person can participate or make their voice heard. So I think polling does have that. That's the idealized view of polling. I think the reality is a little bit different. So there's empirical research that shows that people with varying levels of political knowledge take polls differently. So people of higher levels of political knowledge are more likely to give opinions. So their voices are more likely to be heard in a poll compared to somebody that has low levels of political knowledge. And so that's one of the most direct critiques against the idea of polls being very egalitarian. I guess, you know, in a representative democracy, we think that opinion should be translated into public policy. And so it's one of the most obvious ways that we learn about public opinion. There's a lot of methodology behind polls, and so they're systematic, and they can help us characterize what the nation thinks and believes and wants. So it's, it's yeah. think about what the alternative to polls would be. That's what I was about to ask you. I don't know. And the way you just described polls are not necessarily polls before an election where you're trying to predict the result. They are polls where you're trying to understand what people really think so that you can try to satisfy those needs and requirements of people. You know, because what people say and not what they do, there's big contrast. A really big example is privacy, like Facebook or Google or all the rest, privacy issues. People are, when you ask them, they're afraid, most are afraid. They don't like to give up their privacy. They don't like that their data is being used. But when you look at what they actually do, they still use all those things. And when you look at their Facebook, for example, is a bunch of privacy choices you can make. They don't bother looking at it. Now, I know they sometimes try not to make it easy to look at, but they've made it easier and easier over time. And I don't spend a lot of time looking at it, and I don't want people to know my data. My solution is a more serious solution, which is I don't really go on Facebook very much. Uh, but anyway, the point is there's a difference between what people say, which is I'm concerned about my privacy, and what they actually do, which is I'm going to use this stuff and not worry so much about it. I think that's probably true for lots of things in life. Yeah, I think that same problem can play public opinion data to some degree. So people might say that they watch the news or they pay attention to politics and they might be overstating their actual attention. And so there can be a difference between what people are self-reporting and what they're actually doing. You see that in a lot of domains, especially on sensitive topics or topics where there's an obvious socially desirable answer. But this is where methodology is really exciting and it's fun to do research in this area because there are better and worse ways to ask questions so that you can elicit more truthful answers. And so is a big body of survey research that studies those kinds of topics. And at some level, some of these concepts like trust or a person's identification with the party, they only exist in people's heads. And the only way we find out about them is by asking about them. And there's really no other way. And so I think, you know, we have to be willing to accept some of the messiness and some of the errors of these data to get at some of these interesting concepts. Yeah, well, that might be right for something that broad. But I thinking about Netflix, they know what I'm watching. They know how long I'm on it. They know everything. And so I can get an opinion poll or a survey 
that says, well, what types of TV shows do you like? How often do you watch TV? Do you enjoy Netflix? And I could answer any way I want, but it doesn't matter what I say. The reality is something else. I think it would be actually kind of fun. Again, I have no idea people looked at it. It'd be kind of fun to do that study with a Netflix or an Amazon Prime where you know the answer. You know what Sid's been watching. But then he fills out the survey and says, yeah, I like, uh, you know, documentaries about great leaders that have done this. And meanwhile, I'm watching some crappy show. So that would be a really good documentation of the difference between asking people what they want and what they do versus what they actually do. I don't know whether that would get to your problem of political feelings and political attitudes. I'm not sure. But I think I like the idea just in general of thinking about these odd, non-standard ways of looking at this question of how do you figure out what people really like and want and looking at other industries, if you will, and how they've gone about it and then bringing that back into your field and say, is it relevant or is it not? Is there something I can do with this or not? And maybe it's not, but maybe it is. This is one of my things about academia as well. We become these deep experts in whatever it is we know. And then we don't worry too much about things that are really far afield because who has time? We're too busy working day and night anyways. But anyways, I think that's not a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah, well, some people do that with benchmark studies where you have behavioral data, like what you Mm -hmm. described. You have the hours spent on Netflix or the channel selected. And so that's some of the most creative work in political science. I love those kinds of studies where you can actually measure the behavior of interest. And then it's really cool when you can compare that behavior to how people describe it. So I've done that a little bit when it comes to consuming news. So if we bring people in a lab and we can measure what they choose to read, what kind of a news story, and then we later ask them what they were reading, that's a very simplistic way to get at it. But there's a lot of creative work in that area. Yeah. I wonder whether big data is something that could be used here. Because you mentioned it's so complicated how people come up with their political views. There's many aspects. Some of it is personality-based, experiential-based. Who knows? And so if you were to do some mega big data project like that, you might find a pattern of TV watching. I'm just saying TV watching. It could be, you know, things you buy on Amazon. It could be what you click on and your computer is a lot of data sources. But there's some pattern that might be observed using big data that is somehow related. And I don't know about cause effect here, but somehow related to political attitudes. Yeah, I think there is some work that's being done in that vein. You know, it's all associational. So we just, you know, people who... By Priuses tend to have one kind of view. People who yeah. are buying pickup trucks have another. I think that's actually the part after the subcolon of a recent book on this topic. And so I think some political scientists are probing some of those data. They can't tell us anything about causation, but they can illuminate some associations for sure. Yeah. Well, Jen, we're just about out of time. Let me ask you my last question I like to ask guests about advice that you would give. But the advice in this case is to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old, maybe still discovering new political science courses or just beginning an internship or something like that, if you can go back and say, you know, if there's one thing that I want you, the 21-year-old Jennifer Jarrett, to know, there's one thing you want to pay attention to, or there's one thing you should not do, or don't make this mistake. It could be, you know, I'm curious what that might be. Because it really gets at what you have discovered or learned about yourself or about life or about your career that you kind of wish you knew earlier. I think being more comfortable with not knowing how things are going to turn out. I think, you know, for a lot of people who are sort of academically minded or hard workers who are very ambition oriented or want to achieve a lot, you want to sort of map out the plan. 
you know, have a feeling like, you know, what you want to do, and this is exactly how you're going to get there. And I think that's certainly valuable, but there's a lot of serendipity and I didn't exactly know what I was getting myself into in graduate school, but it all worked out. So I think just being more willing to um, let life unfold and take advantage of the opportunities that come your way, even if you can't exactly predict them all in advance. That's excellent advice. One I truly believe in myself and remarkably a version, not quite the same, but a version of that. Many people think that successful people looking back, they say something similar. And it's quite relevant when you think about education. You know, we're both at Dartmouth College, but any other school, really, when you have smart kids, they are in a hurry. And what you just said and what I believe to be very important, that's a tough sell because they're in a hurry to go to graduate school, to get a job, to go work at Facebook or who knows what it's going to be. And it takes a while to understand. And it's not that you can't do that. There are plenty of examples, but life throws you a lot of curveballs. And some of them are ones you could hit out of the park if you just pay attention to it and you'd love it. So it's great advice. Thank you, Jen. Jennifer Jarrett has been our guest on the SIDCast on a great conversation about the political arena, maybe a couple of depressing things around masks and anti-vaxxers, but that's what the research shows and we need to try to get better at it. Jen, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.